Amy Lefkoff was a dispatcher for the Rockville, Maryland Police Department. The Montgomery County Police Department was the local police agency most involved with the Sniper Task Force, but Lefkoff's department had its share of responses due to all of the area's shootings. So much manpower had been moved to the task force's Joint Operations Center, which by then also housed the Hotline Call Center. So Lefkoff had to work her agency's phones all by herself on October 16, 2002. Lefkoff was bombarded with calls on this day. Even though the hotline number to the JOC was so widely circulated, people on television would see or hear Rockville and think they needed to call the city's police department with tips. The JOC was headquartered in Rockville. Out of the blue, Lefkoff took one of the most consequential calls of the more than 100,000 that were made during the manhunt. There is poor quality to this audio, but here is a portion of that call. The caller referenced the tarot card found at the Bowie shooting nine days earlier. Using that same tone and cadence, like he was reading from something, the caller went on to say, quote, we have called you three times before, trying to set up negotiations. We have got no response. People have died." End quote. That's when Lefkoff interrupted the caller and referred him to the hotline. The caller said nothing else and hung up. The conversation lasted just 38 seconds. Lefkoff had a strange feeling about that call. When she finally got a break, she contacted a supervisor and played him the recording. It was sent to the Sniper Task Force. That was the first time one of the DC snipers called police and got through. It wouldn't be the last. Presented by Law & Crime, this is Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. The investigation into the identities of the DC snipers gained traction as a result of calls made from public payphones. It was a different world 20 years ago. Two days after that mysterious call was made to the Rockville police, Montgomery County police received a direct call from the same person. Officer Derek Belisles, who at the time was also one of the agency's media spokesmen, took the call. The caller originally had dialed the number for Chief Charles Moose's office. An administrative assistant answered it, and the caller told her he had information about the sniper. The call was transferred to Belisles' phone. The now-retired Belisles still remembers every detail about that phone conversation. On October 18th at about 4.30 in the afternoon, I got a call from a male who told me, shut up and listen and don't ask any questions. Um, that's not the normal type of phone call that I get from people. The caller told Belisles that he knew who was responsible for the killings. But before he got into that, he wanted Belisles to verify something for him first. The caller told Belisles to call a sergeant with the Montgomery Police Department, but not the agency that Belisles worked for. The caller was referring to the Montgomery City Police Department, 800 miles away, 
in Alabama. The caller gave Belisles the direct number for that police sergeant. He wanted Belisles to call him and ask him about a liquor store shooting that took place in Alabama's capital city the previous month. The person on the other line promised to call back. Belisles said he would look into it and told the caller to ask for Officer Derrick when he called again. Belisles scribbled down the number he saw on the caller ID. It was from a payphone in Ashland, Virginia, about a 90-minute drive south of Rockville, Maryland. The call was confusing, but unique to the other calls Belisles had been fielding. He did what he was asked and called that police sergeant in Alabama. He gathered some interesting details. Two women were shot outside that liquor store. One woman was killed and another survived. Two suspects were seen in the area, but they got away. At 5.40 p.m., barely more than an hour after Belisles got that first call, the same person called back and asked for Officer Derek. Belisles picked up the phone and again had the presence of mind to write down the number on the caller ID. It was from a different payphone in Ashland. The caller told Belisles to speak quickly, so he gave the caller a quick summary of the liquor store shooting in Alabama. The caller confirmed the information was correct. He said he would call him again from a different payphone because he needed to get more quarters. But that third call was never made. Belisles reported the call to the task force. The connection between the sniper case and that liquor store robbery in Alabama would be made days later. But in the meantime, the city of Ashland, Virginia was about to become the scene of the next DC sniper shooting. On October 19th, shortly before 8 p.m., Jeff Hopper and his wife, Stephanie, were walking toward their Cadillac in the parking lot outside the Ponderosa Steakhouse on England Street, a small road between Interstate 95 and Route 1. Hopper was a computer programmer in Melbourne, Florida. He and his wife had been visiting with Stephanie's ailing sister in a suburb outside Philadelphia. They were on their way back and were worried about stopping in the area where the D.C. sniper was causing havoc, so they decided to drive south of Fredericksburg before pulling over to eat. Ashland is a northern suburb of Richmond, Virginia. The hoppers were holding hands, walking to their car, when they heard a noise. Stephanie assumed it was a car backfiring. Jeff looked for what caused the sound, but in that instant... He felt a concussion in the air and a sharp pain in his abdomen. He slumped to the ground and told his wife he'd been shot. Stephanie called 911. My husband has been shot in front of the Ponderosa on Stephanie Hopper remained calm. She gave the emergency operator her best guess as to where the shot came from. Who shot him, ma'am? No, I have no idea he was shot in the front. It would have come from the wind, from the wooded area behind the wind, probably. Okay, it came from the wooded area? Yeah. Patrick Meacham of the Ashland Police Department was the closest police officer to the restaurant. He was working a theft investigation and was interviewing a business owner when the call came over his radio. As it so happened, the business owner actually made a reference to the sniper shootings. 
as we were talking, he just looked up at me and he said, wouldn't it be weird if that happened here? And as soon as he said that, and I mean, just as soon as he had finished his sentence, the dispatcher came over the radio and asked if I was clear because they had a call for a shooting at the Ponderosa. Meacham got into his car and headed to the north end of town, fearing the worst. When I got on scene, there was a woman who was sitting on the sidewalk. She had a, a man's head in her lap, and she was holding a rag or a towel or something on his stomach area. Meacham asked Stephanie to lift the towel, and he saw a nickel-sized wound on Jeff's upper abdomen. I said, you can put the towel back down, keep holding pressure. That is the best thing that you can do right now. And I just happened to mention, I said, this is this is the simple stuff. It's not rocket science. And Jeff and Stephanie both started laughing a little bit. I said, let me on the joke. And Jeff says, she works for NASA. And she says, yeah, I am a rocket scientist. It was a moment of levity Meacham was not expecting. He was astonished at how well the couple kept calm in the face of a life-or-death situation. They helped him remain calm as he tried to administer what little first aid he could while telling police on his radio to close the interstate. An ambulance was staging nearby and wouldn't come to the Ponderosa parking lot until it was safe. Meacham was gobsmacked when he was told that because he was the only police officer there. It was too much territory for one person to handle. And that's when a retired New York City police sergeant approached him, tapped him on the shoulder, and asked whether he could help. Meacham was beyond relieved and asked the retired NYPD sergeant to aim the spotlight on his police cruiser toward the woods. While he panned the woods with that bright light, Meacham got back on his radio and told the ambulance that the coast was clear. It was now Ashland's turn to become ground zero for the swarm of national media. The victim and his wife were walking to their car behind this Ponderosa restaurant last night when witnesses say a shot was fired from the trees. Matthew Wicks was in the parking lot next door. We were like all sitting over there and Wendy was talking and then we heard a loud gunshot and we just thought it came from right in here. Seconds after the shooting, the victim took three steps and fell to the ground. We heard a man over there groaning, like he had been hit, and then we just saw him laying down. Hopper was the 12th victim of the DC snipers. He would become the third to survive his injuries. The medics arrived and asked him how old he was. He told them that he was 37 and he was determined to see 38. He was rushed to the Medical College of Virginia in Richmond. The bullet did a tremendous amount of damage to Hopper's organs. The bullet did not exit Hopper's body. It damaged his stomach, liver, spleen, pancreas, kidney, and diaphragm. It also broke a rib. To save his life, doctors had to remove Hopper's spleen, as well as parts of his pancreas and stomach. He would have more surgeries facing him, but he made it through, in spite of losing nearly five pints of blood. A hospital spokeswoman read to the media a statement written by Stephanie Hopper. The hospital has taken care of all of our needs, so there is no need to send anything other than continued prayer. Please pray also for the attacker and that no one else is hurt. Ashland is located in Hanover County. Hanover's sheriff at the time, Stuart Cook, 
had not been taking part in the daily multi-jurisdictional briefings like the heads of police agencies farther north, and maybe that's why he wasn't as willing to permit federal agents to roam his crime scene. Cook insisted that he had 150 deputies who he thought could handle it. Things got testy between him and one federal agent, and that agent was nearly arrested. But in the end, an ATF agent and his dog found one critical piece of evidence that led authorities to even more evidence. Using his dog and a flashlight, the ATF agent searched the area of the woods. The dog signaled it had located something. The ATF agent aimed his flashlight in the vicinity and spotted a spent casing. Even with the assistance of a dog, it was an incredible discovery considering how dark and dense the woods were. Sometime later, a Hanover County Sheriff's Sergeant saw something on a tree nearby. It was a Ziploc bag. Inside it was a folded piece of paper with a handwritten message. It was stuck to the tree with two white thumbtacks. A forensics expert with the Sheriff's Office was called and collected the evidence. Just like with the tarot card found at the scene of the October 7th shooting in Bowie, Maryland, the letter began with the words, Call Me God, and instructions not to leak the message to the press. The letter's contents mentioned a couple of calls that were made to police, including the one to a female at the Rockville Police Department. The letter also mentioned the call to Officer Derek. The snipers stated that they actually tried to call the task force hotline four times. They listed the numbers they called and blamed the, quote, incompetence of your forces. The writer misspelled incompetence. The message went on to read, quote, These people took calls for a hoax or joke, so your failure to respond has cost you five lives, end quote. The snipers couldn't spell or count. Five shootings had taken place since they dropped that first tarot card near Tasker Middle School in Bowie, assuming that it was dropped before they shot teenager Iron Brown. But Brown survived his injuries, as did Jeff Hopper. In that same note, the snipers demanded that $10 million be placed in a Bank of America account. They provided a PIN, activation date, and expiration date. Investigators learned it was a Visa account. The message also stated that the snipers would contact authorities at 6 a.m. Sunday, the next day, at the Ponderosa. They left a phone number they planned to call. It was for the on-site payphone. They also said the authorities had until 9 a.m. Monday to complete the transaction. Hopper was shot Sunday night, so the snipers gave little time for the task force to act. In the same note, the snipers offered police a second option. They could choose not to comply and try to capture them. If they chose option two, the snipers warned them, quote, then prepare your body bags, end quote. Underneath that message, the snipers stated, quote, your children are not safe anywhere at any time. They also specifically used we in the note, confirming what the task force suspected, that there was more than one sniper. What was found stuck to that tree near the Ponderosa was a windfall of information and evidence, way more than what they collected at the Bowie shooting. In addition to the handwritten note and Ziploc bag, they also got banking information. The investigation went from being in a stasis to going full throttle. If that wasn't enough, a box of center raisins was found by a tree. It had prints on it. But there was a problem, a big problem. 
The Ziploc bag and its contents weren't handed over to a forensics team until 2 a.m. By the time the bag was opened and the contents analyzed, it was already after 6 a.m., the time the snipers told police they should expect their call. Additionally, the telephone number the snipers left for the Ponderosa was wrong. It was off by a couple digits. It was someone's private hardline number. It seemed to be another case of the snipers and those on their tail not being on the same page. In spite of the snipers' efforts to communicate, even still, the task force went to work, hoping to get the snipers on the phone again. Behind the scenes, federal agents took control of both the Ponderosa payphone number and the private number that was two digits off. They made it so that if the snipers called either number, it would be forwarded to them. The downside is that they got a slew of calls, whether it was by people dialing a wrong number or those checking to see whether the restaurant was still open after the shooting. It was not a smooth operation by any means. While all of that was happening, Montgomery County Police Officer Derek Belisles was approached by the task force commander. Chief Moose paid me a visit and he came to my desk and he said, uh, Derek, thank you very much for all that you've done. I appreciate it, but the FBI wants to talk to you. And that was a scary moment because I didn't know what they wanted to talk to me about. Belisles met with agents from both the FBI and ATF. They asked him whether he had received any strange calls. He immediately thought of the one he received a couple days earlier about the Alabama shooting. Belisles was then asked to listen to a recording of a call that Rockville police had received two days earlier, on the 16th. He was asked whether he thought it was the same guy who called him. Belisles listened and asserted confidently that the voice sounded identical. Belisles allowed himself to wonder whether that call he received would result in a major break in the case, but he made sure not to tell anyone. It was very hard not to be able to say that, oh, I got this phone call. But uh, I knew that that would be information that uh, would not be helpful to the investigation. So I had to keep very quiet, not even telling my own family about the phone call that I had received. Before that lead could be chased down, the task force's attention was diverted to a small gas station outside Richmond. It was a rainy morning on October 20th when Edgar Rivera Garcia was talking on a payphone at the Exxon at the corner of Parham Road and West Broad Street, a busy intersection commonly referred to as the West End of Richmond. Garcia was sitting in a white Plymouth minivan with a roof rack. He'd been on the phone for a half hour. He parked next to the kiosk so that he wouldn't have to get out and get soaked in the rain. Jose Morales, who like Garcia was from Guatemala and didn't speak English, was also at the gas station. He'd also used one of the payphones. The time was 8.32 a.m. Exactly 35 minutes earlier, the DC snipers had called the Ponderosa number from one of the payphones at that very gas station, the same one Morales was using. An FBI agent from Baltimore answered their call. The male on the other end told the FBI agent not to say anything and listen. Then he pushed play on a handheld recorder the recorded message mentioned that there would be more killings if the task force didn't comply with everything he said. At the end of the message, which was only about 30 seconds long, he said the words, your children are not safe. After a pause, 
The FBI agent said, I'm listening. She repeated that statement, and that's when the caller hung up. The U.S. Marshals Service was tasked with tracing the call. A marshal inspector found out about it, but not until six minutes later. He was in the same building as the FBI agent. He became furious that he had to wait six minutes before being told of the call. Valuable time was wasted. He got the number and traced it to that Exxon station at the corner of Parham and West Broad. At 8.07 a.m., 10 minutes after the call was made, the inspector told agents at the JOC where the call had been placed. Those agents called the FBI in Richmond. Agents and local police were already monitoring payphones all over town. The Henrico County Police Chief told his officers to swarm the Exxon station. As far as he knew, the snipers were still on the phone. Meanwhile, inspectors with the U.S. Marshals Service were communicating with one another that authorities should go in softly, maintain the element of surprise. They apparently weren't aware that local police were already in full pursuit and had no intention of doing anything softly. At 8.08, a Henrico County police officer spotted a man on the phone sitting in a white van. The police officer called it in on his radio, and the on-scene commander told the officers to move in. It was a massive sting operation for such a tiny gas station. By 8.30, SWAT swept the parking lot and hauled in both Edgar Garcia, the man sitting in the van talking on the phone, and Jose Morales. The two payphones at the gas station were seized as part of the sting. At one point, both Garcia and Morales were face down on the ground, held at gunpoint, and scared out of their minds. The total time that had elapsed from the sniper calling the FBI agent until SWAT moved in was 33 minutes. A chief inspector with the Marshal Service, William Sarukas Jr., who was analyzing everything off-site in real time inside an office in Northern Virginia, discovered there were two payphones on opposite ends of the parking lot at that Exxon. He realized that the sniper had made the call at one of those phones and was likely long gone by the time SWAT arrived. He realized this as soon as it came up on his screen that one of the men arrested was still talking on the phone when police got there and he wasn't even using the same phone that the snipers used. It, it was obvious to all of us in Springfield, Virginia, at our electronic surveillance unit, that these were not the right guys. Sarukas had to tell those at the JOC in Rockville the bad news. Unfortunately, because a massive sting happened in broad daylight at one of the busiest intersections in the west end of Richmond, rumors were going to spread and people's hopes were going to be high that the shooters were caught and the violence would end. The first impression of most people involved, including the task force representatives in Rockville and the law enforcement in Richmond and the media was that the shooting spree was over. Meanwhile, Sarukas was on his phone, talking to whoever would listen, that those who were arrested were not the snipers. Those at the JOC did not want to listen to him, but they knew they had to take him seriously. Not many people wanted to believe what we were saying at that point, but the Marshal Service as an agency is pretty well versed in communications and how to assess and analyze communications as part of a fugitive investigation. 
we pretty much knew as a group that these were not the right guys. Sarukas played the unenviable role of notifying the JOC that the snipers were still out there, plotting their next move. But he would later play a pivotal role in their eventual capture. Meanwhile, FBI Director Robert Mueller learned of the Richmond snafu and wasn't happy. But there was no time for heads to roll. There was only one thing to do, and that was to keep trying. The snipers were still on the loose, and nobody in law enforcement knew who they were. So eventually, the media announced to the world that the two men rounded up outside the Exxon were not the snipers. Weeks later, Garcia and Morales would be repatriated, sent back to their home country. Because the snipers stated in their message that children were not safe, schools across the Richmond area were closed the following day. Hours after the Richmond incident, Charles Moose held one of his many famous news conferences. While in front of the microphone and cameras, he asked the snipers to call again because everything they said was not heard or understood correctly. The deadline to transfer the money was long over, and Moose was trying to buy time, but those efforts to induce the snipers to make a follow-up call turned out to be futile. It was later learned that the snipers watched the entire scene at the Exxon unfold from across the street that morning. Upon seeing that, the snipers decided phone calls weren't the smartest way to communicate with police. That was something the task force desperately wanted to avoid. Halloween was 11 days away, and Election Day was a week after that. Police and politicians were worried. Halloween could be canceled, but not Election Day. On that same eventful Sunday, Montgomery, Alabama police chief John Wilson III was in Atlanta with his brother watching the Falcons game. Wilson was going to spend the night there and then drive two and a half hours the following morning back to Montgomery. But at seven o'clock that night, Wilson's chief of detectives contacted him. He had a far-fetched idea to discuss with his boss. He told Wilson that one of the sergeants had been contacted by the sniper task force in Maryland, and investigators there thought that maybe the sniper shootings were connected to a liquor store shooting in downtown Montgomery the previous month. The subject of a possible connection between that liquor store shooting and the sniper case was actually brought up by Wilson's staff during a meeting earlier that month, but it was never taken seriously by anyone in the room. The liquor store shooting involved a rifle, but it appeared to have been a robbery. Police were just spitballing, but after that Sunday phone conversation with his chief of detectives, Chief Wilson started to take the notion of a connection very seriously. The sergeant who received that call from Derek Belisles same one who the mysterious caller told him to reach out to, was Scott Martino. He knew the fatal liquor store shooting case well. It was one that shocked everyone who responded to it and investigated it. One really bothered us because of the nature of violence. Um, so it was an active case that was pretty high on the priority list for us. At, at, it was a really violent act. Just the fact that someone was cold, calculated, and brutal enough to commit that type of crime to two unarmed women. They were shot execution style is how we would explain it. There was no reason, nothing that would have forced or made the criminal feel like they needed to do that. 
The shooting occurred on September 21st, which was a Saturday. Alabama State University, located in downtown Montgomery, was hosting Arkansas Pine Bluff. A few blocks from the stadium, 52-year-old Claudine Parker, an ASU graduate, was about ready to close up the ABC liquor store she managed and head to the game. She was working with Kelly Randall, a clerk at the store. Randall, who went by the surname Adams at the time, had been the victim of an armed robbery nine months earlier while working at another liquor store. Before the shooting, nothing seemed strange about this particular night. It was a routine close. Randall moved the outdoor trash cans into the store, and Claudine had her keys in hand. She closed the door, and the second she closed the door and put the key in, that's when all hell broke loose. Without warning, two shots rang out. It wasn't those sounds that shocked Randall. She literally felt like she had been shocked, possibly by a bolt of lightning. Her ears started buzzing. She was disoriented, and it took her a few seconds to realize the extent of her injuries, or even that she was lying on the ground. I'm just was surrounded by this intensely bright white light, the brightest white light I've ever seen in my life. And I still feel like that shock all over my body. And I'm not really sure what's happening. And then all of a sudden, it was like everything just zoomed back in. Reality just came back. And I heard like the traffic and I heard a woman screaming. I felt pain on the back of my head from where I hit the back of my head when I fell. I remember looking for someone to help me because I knew I was hurt. When I looked to my left, I just saw this trail of blood and I'm like, oh crap. I touched my face, like the left side of my face where like my jaw was, and it felt like jello. My face was not where it should have been. So I kind of picked up what was left of it and held it in place. There was just so much blood. I'm like, I'm, I'm not going to make it. I'm, I'm going to die. The bullet that struck Randall entered through the back of her neck, passed through her mouth, and exited through her cheek. Her left jawbone was broken, and two of her top teeth were gone. Parker was struck by the other bullet, and her injuries were even graver. The round entered her back and severed her spine. She was pronounced dead later that night at Jackson Hospital, which was one block from the scene of the shooting. When the shooting occurred, a patrol unit was close by, driving by, doing their routine patrol, heard the shooting, saw the commotion, and one of the officers got into a foot pursuit of the shooter. During that time, he did see him throw something down, which was a, a magazine, a gun and ammo type magazine of, of different types of weapons. A second suspect also was seen by at least one witness. Neither was caught. The magazine that Martino referred to was an Armalite magazine. It was actually a catalog that contained listings of rifle accessories. It had fingerprints on it. The prints were checked, but they didn't match anything in the state's database. Police also ran them through Georgia's database, and the results again came back negative. At that time, a total of 19 states were linked to the FBI's fingerprint database, but Alabama was not one of them. Five weeks later, when it was discovered that there might be some connection between the liquor store shooting and the DC sniper case, the prints were declared high priority and were sent directly to the FBI. Days after the shooting, 
passerby found a handgun lying in the area. It was found along the route the gunman had taken on foot when he ran from police. It was a five-shot 22 caliber Magnum revolver. The gun had actually been stolen from El Paso, Texas. When the decision was made to send the prints to the FBI, police also decided to send some of the recovered bullet fragments to Maryland for analysis. All of the information and evidence from that liquor store shooting was about to alter the dynamic of the country's biggest criminal investigation. And that wasn't all. A man in the Pacific Northwest was growing increasingly concerned as news kept breaking about random shootings in the D.C. area. That man was Robert Holmes, an Army veteran who ran an auto repair business in Tacoma, Washington. On October 11th, the day Kenneth Bridges was shot outside Fredericksburg, Holmes was watching a news segment on TV, during which someone suggested that the sniper shootings may have been the work of a tandem, a shooter, and a spotter. That got his attention. Holmes continued to keep an eye on the news after that, when he saw the news break about the October 14th slaying of Linda Franklin in Fairfax County and saw a photo of the possible rifles used in the shooting, he really started thinking. One of the rifles on the TV screen looked almost identical to a rifle that a friend of his had owned, and he knew that his friend had some crazy thoughts swirling in his head. And that friend had a young sidekick who was willing to do anything he instructed him to do. Robert Holmes picked up the phone and called the task force tip line. Coming up on Chasing Ghosts, the hunt for the DC snipers. He was rebounding from a divorce. I thought, okay, that's a reasonable excuse. And he's going through some hard times. As soon as I got in my car, I shut the door, then the window exploded. He was in the garage and he said, you have become my enemy, and as my enemy, I will kill you. Chasing Ghosts is presented by Law & Crime. Music and production by Corey Hiltman. All 911 and dispatch calls were provided by the National Law Enforcement Museum in Washington, D.C., you may follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Holt Podcast. Please subscribe and leave a review. Chasing Ghosts is available on Law & Crime's website, as well as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere else you get podcasts.